Coffee Carmen Connection is about being human. It's about you choosing to prioritize your well-being, putting the time in to strengthen your resilience to adversity, and being part of a community that holds you accountable and offers support when the going gets tough. Our podcasts bring expert insight and real-life experiences together for you to enjoy and learn what it is that makes us human and how to work with it. Good afternoon, Ahmed. Thank you ever so much for joining me on uh, the Coffee Calm and Connection podcast. I would love if you could give us uh, a bit of uh, an overview of your background and um, then I can introduce the topic. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Um, my name is Ahmed Ismail. I'm a, I'm a consultant psychiatrist, but I'm also uh, an accredited cognitive behavior therapist. So I've, I've got the two the two hats. And, and if I just can explain the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So a psychiatrist kind of usually concern themselves, psychiatrists concern themselves with making a diagnosis and offering medication. So uh, physical and- medication, so like, whereas psychologists is more like they look into the kind of the relationship between uh, feelings and thoughts and behavior and and things like that. Yeah. Fabulous! I'm glad you um you gave the distinction because uh, it's something that I think sometimes is used interchangeably. So it's useful to have that uh, understanding from the get go. And yeah. actually, your two hats, as it were, allow you to give a really integrated sort of approach to to somebody. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I've I've got the I've got the two hats, as you said, the two qualifications which allow me to kind of actually look at how the medical, what we call it, the medical model work in terms of the diagnosis and medication, but also the other, other side of this, which is a psychological treatment, which is a talking therapy, which works slightly different. The emphasis is slightly different. Really helpful. So today, and we've had some conversations prior to this about depression, and I would love to have the conversation with you today about depression in its many different guises. So I'm talking uh, clinical depression, I'm talking uh, non-clinical symptomatic depression, maybe the relationship between both and, and how that manifests in different different people. So I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on depression as an illness and sort of where the balance tips from clinical or from non-clinical to clinical. I think, I mean, every one of us kind of uh, understand and uh, know, knows about this, that we can all be become a bit depressed from time to time. We can feel a bit low, but often than not, then we're able to shake it off. We're able to come out of it. Uh, we are all able to talk ourselves up a bit about the way we feel. And that normally works for a lot of people in, in many situations. So... The depressed feeling isn't in itself an issue. That's just part of the way I think our mood tend to kind of uh, function or fluctuate as a result of certain triggers in the environment. But sometimes, and um, and for some of us, that drop in mood can sometimes be quite significant and it's quite difficult for people to recover from it and it lasts a bit longer. Uh, and And that's by itself is not necessarily uh, a clinical or an illness by itself because if you lose a loved one you can feel a bit down for quite a significant length of time but that's just normal reaction to losing someone that's not necessarily 
something we you need help with. So um, people can um, experience these feelings and they recover from it, uh, or can it be quite long, but would be within accepted kind of a normal reaction to things. So that's not necessarily uh, often. It doesn't stop people from functioning. So people can function normally uh, in terms of social functioning as a member of a family or in terms of work or in terms of a wider community. We kind of still function with this kind of feelings. I did a podcast with Leisha from NAFS a few days ago and it was really interesting. And she, we were talking about burnout and she was saying um, that in her reading, somebody whose name escapes me at the moment, I think Judy Clippin had said that depression is when you are exhausted of life and burnout is when you're exhausted from life. And I thought that distinction was really, really interesting, actually. It's very simple and and, and I get it. So I, I suppose what this is quite an interesting podcast to go alongside leashes because we're looking at symptomatic reactions that could be quite similar, burnout, depression, and the crossover between the two, they're quite interlinked? Yeah, I think these things are interlinked and they are in a, on a continuum, meaning we can all have some degree of those feelings. But sometimes for some people, these feelings might be quite um, really set in, entrenched, and mm-hmm. it's difficult to shift and that's when you get the kind of the type of a clinical depression where that stop you from functioning. And that's what we, the type of depression we, we would like to help people with because we think we can offer uh, many types of treatment. Can you, can you define to me what you mean by stop somebody from functioning? Because, because a lot of the people I speak to, and I've certainly, I've certainly experienced parts of this in my life and, and people close to me have as well, where the ability to function and just get through life is still there, but it's sort of reduced. So um, so you still get up, you still go to the shops, you still get the kids to school, you still go to work. It's just mentally you're disengaged from all those processes. So where does the balance change when it is when functioning is is not really happening, although you're going through the motions? Does that make sense? I, th- I don't think anyone can give you an exact kind of point where to say at 30% of this, you will, you will have clinical depression. I think this is more like just a degree of uh, as compared to your functioning before. So if you, if, you, if you can't go to work anymore or if you can't function going to work when you're there, if you, if you can't maintain your attention concentration to do the work you, you normally do, I think that's where you, if you stop functioning as a partner or as a father, and uh, the normal things you do every day, you can't do them anymore, or you do them with great distress, really, uh, and suffering, that's stop functioning. And um, that's, that's a brilliant benchmark, actually. And I love it because it's comparative only to you rather than to, I think there's so much in this world at the moment where we compare ourselves to others and it, and it doesn't help. Whereas if your benchmark for your feeling is only you, I think that's quite a useful tool for people listening to be able to think, you know, actually me at the top of my game and me now, where is that benchmark? And is it something I need to think about getting some some support with? Yeah, pe- people can function with a significant degree of mental health problems. 
So what, what the level of depression for you that stop you functioning maybe someone else is just day-to-day stuff doesn't affect them. So it, it, it's, it's quite variable. I mean, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, I think, is quite known for talking about the black dog, which means the depression. So, so he was highly functioning, wasn't he? I mean, he was mm. kind of quite a function to a high, very high level. So mm. that didn't stop him from functioning. So just feeling depressed and feeling low doesn't mean necessarily that you become clinically depressed. I think it's more complicated than that. And sometimes it's the it's a degree of vulnerability you have for these problems and the stress level you, you experience at a certain point. And often it's about that stress level actually mirroring some of your vulnerabilities. So if I just may explain that a bit more. I mean, in general, depression is about loss and failure. So this is the two main kind of really believe that's get activated. Uh, and when I say activated, it means they're already there, but you were able to overcome them over time in your life. You're, you're doing things to try to stop them from coming out. So if you have that vulnerability, so if you, if you, were, if you were brought up in, a, in an environment where there's a lot of failures and a lot of losses and things, that makes you vulnerable to depression when you become older. So if you get stressful events that is around loss and failure, then you're more likely to react badly to those things. Yeah? Yeah. So there's some kind of level of uniqueness about your experience and how depression comes out at the end. So it's not just the stress at work and then you become depressed. No, that seemed to bring out vulnerability. So you've already got that thing there. Almost like a, a genetic preemptive possibility that you're more like or more susceptible to to this type of, of illness. Yes, yeah, some of it is genetic and some of it is environmental. And yeah, the nature-nurture debate. Yeah, the environmental level of it. There's a very good research done by, I think, uh, someone called Harris, which looked at depression, and they found that women who had lost their mothers b- before the age of 11, they're more likely to have depression as an Whoa. adult. Yeah. Wow, so, yeah. So there's, there's certain kind of uh, what we call schemas, there's certain kind of set of beliefs and way of reacting to environment that may lay dormant there waiting for certain mashing event to become activated. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Do you in your line of work see a particular type of person more than others? And I'll just frame why I've asked that question. When I was talking to Leisha, yeah. uh, we were talking about the type of people that experience uh, high-level burnout, being very driven, very perfectionist, that type of person. Do you do you see some commonalities generally? Yes. So that's interesting because when you talk about burnout and people having perfectionistic tendencies, that's often, often, not always, often comes from a base where you feel you're not perfect enough or you're not good enough. Yeah? Mm, failure yeah so what you do is you go through life trying to actually fight against that but but because you're overdoing it that can take you only as far as there has to come a point where this doesn't work anymore and when it doesn't that that confirm your original ideas does that make sense yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah it's so so interesting yeah 
So, which is similar to depression. So you've had losses before and you went through life and doing things to try to kind of cope with that. But there come a, a loss or something similar to it, even semantic meaning to that might bring it out. You see, and then you may not be aware of that. Sometimes the therapy is all about trying to get you to see that really. Mm, really interesting. Yeah. So one of the things, so I, in my life, I've done, I have done CBT therapy before after my last child, I, I had a period of CBT therapy, but I, I don't think I was in a good relationship with the therapist. So like it never went anywhere. But what I find really interesting is is that concept of almost playing you back at you. Sometimes it's so, you can be so your habits or, or or drivers can be so subconsciously inbuilt that you're not even aware of 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 what you're what you're doing or why you're doing it. And one of the conversations I had that I was really interested in with Aji was about the inner lens. So the lens through which you are seeing life is a result of nature nurture working together and sometimes just noticing what that lens is telling you is is like an epiphanous moment yeah so uh, and and that lens or i mean i probably call it schema it's probably the same thing that that could be genetically informed it could be environmentally informed mm. but i mean the point i was trying to get through here to people is that it's the events later in life may have may need to have some matching similarities mirroring effect of those of those problems uh, in depression it's usually around loss or failure yeah so yeah. you'll be working very hard to try and to really disprove you are prone to failure that and make sure you're successful but if you if you overdo it or if you're working harder than you should then you might invite that kind of uh, things to become reality so and yeah I have a question from from something I did a while back a conversation I had with someone yeah. he was saying that he had never suffered loss as a child but loss really affected him so if he was to watch a film about loss he really it really affected him he's a clinical psychologist and he was yeah. saying it took him a really long time to realize why his trigger was so powerful and it's because his mother was an orphan and so her loss he'd almost taken that burden from her as a young child that's incredibly interesting yeah i mean it could be that but i, I mean i don't know this person well but i, I mean i would have I mean, I, it, once I heard you saying that, I wasn't going to suggest. I mean, loss sometimes doesn't have to be the physical loss of losing a person. It could be loss of a status, loss of meanings, loss of something that you hold dear to yourself. It could be many, many things, but it's just that you kind of lost something. So, lost uh, an important relationship in your life. Divorce could be because you've relied so much on your partner that that kind of loss really. Mm. So um, you had you had lots of ambition for yourself, and you realized it weren't happening. Just kind of lost. You lost something. Um, yeah. So and loss and failure are very interlinked in those type of concepts, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. 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 But, but there could be the loss of a caregiver when you're young. Someone, your your parents, you lost your parents because of they died for some reason. That could be that type of loss. Yes. That. Mm. But it could be, it could be other type of loss. It could be uh, of other levels, really, not necessarily a physical one. So taking that, so the idea of, of depression and really having a think about 
this mirror um mirror idea from maybe something in in a younger lifetime that has affected the way you think or your belief system what sort of things can you do if you are somebody that does struggle with uh, I'm going to call it functioning depression I don't know if that's the right term or not but what sort of because it's not any fun to live that day in day out grind of I'm just forcing my way through life and I just wish I wasn't. That's not any fun. What sort of things can people do if they really want to start to evaluate their own perceptions and filters or schemas? Yeah, I think if you have a functioning depression, it is, I mean, it is quite really distressing and disabling to have something like that. But I think psychological treatment, talking therapy, trying to really look at the reason you feel that way, because often those feelings are triggered by negative views about yourself or about other people about the world. So you need to understand a bit of why is that is the case. And often you find the origin of that in your kind of in someone's earlier life uh, and upbringing. And that can be quite, quite really useful to try to uncover that. The answer usually lies in what you're doing now, not on what happened before, because you can never change what happened before. But it's the way you do, you're trying to deal with it. Sometimes that can be not the right things to do, and it can actually cause the problem to become worse. So it's that kind of type of dysfunctional coping mechanisms you're trying to cause it. The example you gave earlier about someone who was trying to be perfect because they're actually they're coming from a place where they don't feel perfect. They don't feel, they're worried about failing. You see, they, 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 they wanted to make sure that doesn't come out. But you have to be careful because sometimes that is going to do exactly the thing you're trying to really work against. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what um, I find quite interesting? You just mentioned coping mechanisms there and how some behaviours can be quite compulsive and the more I'm going to say stress, but I'm I'm talking about myself, actually. So I can be quite compulsive with certain behaviours where, I don't know, I've just eaten three quality street and I now feel sick and I do not need to eat the rest of the box, but I'm going to anyway. That type of compulsive, and I'm very aware I do not want to eat this quality street, but I'm going to eat it anyway. Or, you know, if I open a bottle of wine, I will probably finish the bottle of wine. But for me, I think those are probably coping mechanisms when I'm highly stressed or they're not necessarily any clinical problems this is just part of the life people kind of the way they they function but there's 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 a kind of a mixture of drive and impulse control and stuff like that but they're not necessarily something we need to be labeled as kind of psychologically not right really Mm. and perhaps compulsive is too much of a a medicalized term so maybe that's the wrong but I just I just notice certain patterns in my behaviors that increase when I'm feeling stressed and decrease when I'm not and and actually if you if you put a magnifying glass on that for some people and and those whole things are magnified to the point of becoming dysfunctional that can be really hard to to sort of manage yeah i mean there's certainly we know that when people are depressed they tend to think more negatively so it's Mm. the way you feel it changes the way you think which Mm. is actually opposite to the the fundamental idea about cb cognitive therapy which is cognitive therapy's fundamental idea that is the way you think changes the way you feel and then you behave. But we know that's not accurate all the time. And this is more like a, this is a vicious cycle. Stuff goes around, really. 
So, so I'm, I'm interested in, in the CBT. Can you talk to, talk to me through about the sort of the fundamental principles, how it helps, what sort of things you can practice? Yeah, I mean, it's, the fundamental idea is very, is very, is very simple, really, uh, as as coined by uh, Beck, who, who was a, an American psychiatrist in the late sixties, early seventies, I think. So it's just basically saying that when you are faced with certain events, it is not those events which determine how you feel; it's the way you interpret them. Yeah, is the thought that comes to your head about it that makes you feel that certain way. But we normally talk about these things like, in a way, we say, I've been somewhere, I've met that person, and he made me feel. We kind of, that's the way we we talk about it, as if events made you feel a certain way. And his fundamental idea is, no, it's not the way, it's not the event themselves, it's the way you interpret them. But that interpretation is a lot influenced by your upbringing, your environment, your culture, a lot of other things kind of... Uh, and your unique schema, your unique way of thinking, and that kind of type of style of the way you you're, you perceive the world, really, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the lens from which you see the world. That's, that's your own kind of interpretation, attaching meanings to things. Mm. So that's basically what CBT is, cognitive therapy is. I mean, the behavioral element is existed before the cognitive therapy came to existence, and and that was very much it's the it is the Bavlovian kind of dog experiment. I don't know if you know about that one. It's about the yeah. So it's that kind of association we you get with um with, with some primordial kind of f- feelings and in a stick that is linked to, uh, in, in a way to, our, our sense is linked in a way to reward. So it's a, whatever you're being that can reinforce certain behaviors or or, or otherwise. Uh, discourage people from taking certain behavior. So, so the cognitive therapy idea took off as cognitive therapy, but later on people realized there's a lot of behavioral element to this, so they combined the two together. But cognitive therapy was originally about the way we, this, this is the, the way we interpret things and the meaning we attach to things is what determined how we feel about things. Yeah. No, that's Therefore, really interesting. If we, if we experience strong emotions, we need to change the way we think about things. That's basically it. Mm. And I suppose that is done over time with small incremental changes and sort of process behind it to, to keep to form those habits, those those neural pathways. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's quite a it's quite a personalized. Uh, it's, it's it's quite a so CBT works on your problem r- rather than giving you a, a already preformed diagnosis to say this is what the problem you have. So in terms of the psychiatrist, the medical model, we say you've got this symptom of depression, which you feel low, uh, you you uh, feel tired, you, you lose interest in things, you're feeling hopeless and helpless, you're feeling guilty, therefore you have depression. Whereas that's what the psychiatrists say, you've got these symptoms, you've got depression, I'll give you this medication, it'll help you to get better. But the psychologist would say differently. I need I need to understand what exactly made you to be more inclined to think this way. If you are faced with loss, for example, mm. why would you feel very depressed? So we need to look back at your childhood, your upbringing. We need to look back at your fa- family history of psychiatric problems. Maybe you have a, a high genetic loading of these problems. Maybe you were faced with too many losses when you were young. 
And that's what made you prone to these problems because it made you have this idea that you're, you're always going to have, to, you're, you're going to fail or eventually, or that loss is going to be, you're always going to be faced with some element of loss in your life. And that, just, that's the idea of the lens or the schema. That's what really your own, that's your kind of, uh, your blueprint. That's how you think and and and, uh, and, and respond to, to, to think. That's your way of, your unique way of uh, reacting to things in your own environment. Do you think there is a place for meditation, mindfulness type work when trying to unpick some of these um, schemas or perspectives? Oh yeah, I mean uh, it's absolutely. So mindfulness is um, uh, what now they call it the third generation of CBT, a cognitive therapy. Really? Uh, oh, I didn't know uh, that. I mean, pe- people have learned. So um, I think when in the sixties or seventies, people. Um, so these ideas were coming out and, and they were kind of being held as dogmas. So this is my kind of idea. So it is cognitive therapy and this is behavioral therapy. But people now started to realize, I mean, these things are really, they feed, feed, feed from each other really. And they, they quite uh, have element in, of truth in them about the problems. So what I'm trying to say is, so uh, the mindfulness it's not it's not being sold as a, a separate kind of type of treatment it is it's still part of the cbt kind of a, a approach to things uh, and uh, it, it does in addition to using those uh, far east kind of uh, buddhism ideas and stuff about meditation and stuff it's it still uh, uses that kind of uh, fundamental ideas about cbt and behaviorism w- w- within that so absolutely mindfulness is it's, it helps with anxiety. It's helped clear one thought. It helps to to stop people from um, rushing into kind of making that assumption about things. So it, it does definitely have element in, in treatment and it does yeah. have a lot of empirical evidence backing it. Yeah, absolutely. I love the um, Viktor Frankl approach, the stimuli space response. But yeah. one of the things that I think about mindfulness is it increases this space in between the stimuli and your reaction and once you're aware of that tiny moment of space, you've got the power to make a choice. And I, I you know, I think that's an incredible tool for yeah. anybody to start to develop. Yeah, absolutely. Because sometimes it's, I mean, it's, 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 it has a similarity to the way CBT works anyway, because CBT is about, again, slowing that time between uh, you being an event and then feeling certain things. It's about trying to get you to see that there's something in the middle happens, which is a, a thought process mm. that sometimes or often is negative, and that's why you feel that way. And it's just to try to, to get you to slow down that process, to bring it to your attention, to try to help you to deal with it. I hadn't realized the connection between CBT and mindfulness, but now you say it, I think, I obviously I see it. And I think yeah. um, just being present and taking that little tiny bit of space is such an important thing, especially when how crazy our world is at the moment and how busy our lives are. Absolutely. No, I think that's really, really interesting, really interesting. And yeah, really valuable to the people listening because I know in my line of work, I speak to an awful lot of people that are high-functioning depressive, you know, work so hard, put so much pressure on on themselves and and it's hard. So having these kind of conversations and just understanding a little bit more about why and what and, and what we can do to help, I think is really, really interesting. So thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the uh, if we just, we, we've already mentioned the symptoms, but the symptoms of depression, I think 
most of the classificatory system uh, kind of agree on that kind of, this is the main symptoms you would expect someone who is clinically depressed. So we will feeling low all the time, feeling sad, miserable every day, through the day. It's not just part of the day. And you, you need that to be going on for about two weeks at least, really. It's not, it's not just a short kind of spurt of, uh, burst of feeling a bit depressed. No, it has to be consistently. Mm. The, the word we like to use is pervasive, so they're all the time. Mm. And so the, the next symptom is feeling fatigue, it's kind of this fatigability, feeling exhausted uh, for no apparent reason. You wake up in the morning and you feel very tired for no reason, although you had a good night's sleep. And the, the third main symptom is that um, you lose interest in things. So you don't enjoy things that normally you used to enjoy um, and nothing give you pleasure. So these main three symptoms are, are indicative that there's a, a, a clinical depression kind of thing. The other symptoms include the sleep problem. So you find it difficult to get off to sleep, but the most specific one is you wake up early in the morning, earlier than expected, so three, four o'clock in the morning and you couldn't go back to sleep again. And you wake up with a lot of worrying thoughts in your head, stuff like that. Mm. So the other symptom is uh, is the uh, is the uh, loss of appetite. So and uh, might be loss of weight, and it can be as significant as five percent if you wait over a month's time. Is the converse of those two things true? So I've spoken to people that don't wake up early, don't suffer insomnia, but they're almost narcoleptic. Just I want to sleep all the time, and I'm just sleep a lot, a lot, a lot, way more than you need to, and still tired. And the same with the weight putting weight on, eating compulsively, that kind of thing. Are those? Yeah. So there's another type of depression, uh, which you people used to call endogenous depression, and people sometimes link to seasonal kind of variations, kind of seasonal depression. You tend to often um, get people sleeping more and eating more, which is, yeah, so yeah. In, in that type of depression. So sleeping, I mean, sleeping more and eating more doesn't necessarily mean you're not depressed. Could be still kind of depression. So, so it's all about the three symptoms I mentioned at the beginning, which is a low mood, the uh, loss of interest in things, and fatigability. There's also a lot of guilt feeling and worrying thoughts, and losing attention and concentration, and increase in sexual drive, and uh, and uh, things like that. So, th- this is probably just a list of the the most kind of common symptoms of depression. Um, yeah. people need to look for really so as we said you could you could be functioning uh, depressed and but they usually come a time when depression becomes so severe because of certain events where that you stop functioning and that's mm-hmm. when people respond to medication often so mm-hmm. you, need, you need to get that that degree of clinical uh, symptom symptoms for people to become uh, more treatable really um, mm. Sometimes lower level of depression doesn't respond to medication. So I encourage people if they feel that they have any of these symptoms to to talk to someone because sometimes these things can be can lend themselves very nicely to treatment with talking therapy mm. and um, and to stop you from getting to a point where you become uh, clinically depressed and and can't function. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, and I think laying out the the, the sort of main symptoms, I'm sure lots of people will relate to them, and I think it's quite helpful. The two things you've said to me that are quite helpful is the pervasive nature of those symptoms when viewed against a benchmark from an earlier point in your life, and and that for me is quite um, 
enlightening you know you're viewing it against yourself from a happier time uh so no i'm really grateful for that and i'm sure um it will be very valuable to um everybody listening so ahmed can you explain to me um this sort of the vulnerability to depression and and recurrent depressive episodes and and how how that fits certain people yeah i mean it seems like once you become depressed it seems uh for some reason you uh, become more susceptible to having first depressive episode in the future. And uh, a, lo- a lot of research has gone to try to understand that. And uh, there's a, a lot of people, I mean, my, I could remember, I could recall uh, a, a guy called Tease Dale. I mean, there's a lot of work and research done in this area to try to understand that. So uh, of why... Um, once you've had a depressive episode, a clinical depressive episode, why you more prone, why one's become more prone to having another episode and another episode and another episode. So what does explain the fact that depression become recurrent? So I think what, what they have come up with is the fact that um, the more depressive episode you have, the more uh, you require a lesser type of or degree of stress to trigger it so so you don't need as much stress as the first one so it becomes almost like something like an association so a minor level of stimuli can trigger you to becoming depressed mm. so if you if you became depressed the first time around because you lost your job and you, you divorced from your wife and stuff like that the next one might not need that or that level of uh, of stressful events it's just because somehow your mind and your body kind of recognize these symptoms. So the next time, but even by association, even certain uh, kind of feelings, you might you might get uh, those triggering you to become depressed. So actually, a way to combat that would be you'd have you really have to work extra hard on the the talking therapies and the reframing your your um mental attitudes and your 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 schemas or your perceptions you'll have to really put some time and effort into that to be able to build up your resilience there it is to build up your resilience again it's like your resilience has gone and and you need to work harder to build that resilience is that I mean, yeah, yes, that yes would be uh, definitely psychological therapy would help because that would address the underlying problems and the vulnerability and help you to manage those kind of symptoms. But also, I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's a treatment with medication uh, because sometimes that can reduce the chance of future relapses. So, once someone becomes depressed, we give them medication to help with the index depressive episode, but. Uh, I mean, people will probably know this. We ask people to take medication for a year or two after that. So the reason we do that is we know people are more uh, susceptible to have another relapse immediately after having one uh, episode. So advising people to take medication for a longer period, even after they become well and they recover from the depressive episode, is to try to reduce the risk of relapse. Oh, I didn't and know that. If, yes, if if you don't relapse that quickly or if you don't have too many relapses, then that would reduce this kind of uh, risk of you having more episodes in the future. So the, the treatment itself and, and continuing the treatment after the recovery from the first episode might be another way of to trying to reduce this risk of depression becoming recurrent. 
Mm, that's really helpful. Thank and you. Also, once someone had more than one episode, so if you've had one episode and then another one and then a third, then you probably advise you to take medication for longer than a year or two. So you'll be looking at longer periods in addition to the psychological treatment. Yeah, but the two go very much hand in hand, the psychological yeah. treatment and the, the medication. No, I think that's really helpful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Your reviews, shares and followership is incredibly valuable to us. If you'd like to know more about our work through Coffee, Calm and Connection and how we can support you, please email us at hello at coffeecalmconnection.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.